Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talk about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm CEO Peter White and uh, back from his travels is editor Bogdan Avramuta. Hello everybody. And um, we've still got solar analyst Andres Montanar. Hello there. And battery analyst Connor Watts. Hello. Um, this discussion is built around the stories we published last night on our website. If you go to rethinkresearch.biz, click on energy. Uh, if you can't get in, it's because you're not paying a subscriber, so you'll have to ask for a free trial. We repeated our battery gigafactory count, and it really is accelerating. It, and the latest issue shows that um, lithium-ion battery manufacturing will grow from uh, 1.163 gigawatt hours today to over 10,000 gigawatt hours by 2030. Separately, Andres asks, uh, why is it that Scandinavia, not known for its blistering sunshine, is suddenly installing lots and lots of solar? And we hear from Bogdan about a nuclear company that says it can make a small nuclear reactor that provides energy at 20 dollars per megawatt hour um that's fantasy land i'm sure but we'll talk about it a bit later and then i'll ask a few questions on one of the two of the shorter items um i just want to mention this week that we've uh, also published our uh, latest forecast on um on geothermal energy out to 2050 uh, and that's something you also might want to look at on the website go to rethinkresearch.biz click on energy, and then click on forecasts and data. So first off, uh, up it's Connor, uh, Gigafactory report. What, what, what's changed? So what's changed is that what's changed since the last time that we've spoken about this is the IRA and the Critical Raw Materials Act and Repower EU and the Green Industrial Plan. And there's been so many little bits of policy and large bits of policy which have completely changed the battery landscape and have changed the investment landscape in particular. So America is now a competitor, which, you know, it wasn't prior to the Inflation Reduction Act. It's now the largest growing region when it comes to the announcements centered around the US, Canada, and Mexico. Europe has hit a few roadblocks, but is now recovering fairly significantly now that it's passed the uh, temporary transition framework, which allows member states to provide subsidies into law companies back towards their industrial heartlands. The battery industry is set to grow, and China is currently 77% of all lithium-ion battery manufacturing. Yeah. In second place is Poland, which is at <laughs> 6%, which is pitiful. And that's almost entirely because of LGS. Okay. They're one factory in Poland, which is 70 gigawatt hours. Okay. And, that, and that's it's grown quite a bit. That's doubled, virtually, in the last couple of years, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Okay. Um, it's interesting, though. I mean, what, what you're really in here is we're now in a trade war. I mean, everybody is subsidizing their own, sponsoring the industry. And this is vital. It's, it's strange that um, none of this happened under previous administrations. And suddenly, you know, everyone's saying, oh, the Chinese subsidize their industry. We we better subsidize ours and block everything Chinese. Um, and it's, it is something of a trade war. But even in a trade war, China seems to be flourishing. 
Well, yes. A well to lean on one of my other articles this week is the idea that globalization is dead. And that the war in Ukraine in particular, but also COVID nineteen, have shifted international attitudes away from this idea of free trade and effectively manufacturing at the lowest bidder, which has benefited China so well and Japan and South Korea prior to that. And now countries care where their goods are made. Yeah, I mean, there's there's also something you've been pointing out in the last couple of weeks, which is that an increasing number of countries that have good deposits of uh, raw minerals are now saying you've got to do the first step of processing in our country. You you know, if you want to have our minerals, provide some jobs. Yeah, exactly. And that's going to come to a head at some point with, let's say, Europe's target of domestic refining capacity, which the EU is still working on an MOU with Chile, which that's going to need to be a main, main factor of that because Chile wants to keep some of its... uh, You know, I... I I can't see Europe uh, processing uh, raw mining materials. I, I just, it just seems to me that they'll give in on this. It's about who has the leverage here, isn't it? And whoever has the raw materials uh, has the leverage, as long as it's not too large a part of their economy. Well, especially if they're in a place w- w- which is allowed to do business with America, allowed to do business with Europe, and allowed to do business with China. <laughs> which Chile is all three of them. Yes. So they're... Yeah, playing their hand very, very, yeah. very well. Okay, and, and where else are, are, are people doing this? Did you say Indonesia is doing the same? Indonesia has already banned oil exports and is looking to ban copper exports in, I believe, May 2024. They're waiting on two smelters to come online, right. at which point copper oil exports from the country will be banned. But they've already banned nickel oil exports, which has led to a pretty massive influx of investments. Presumably, these smelters are being paid for by China and provided by China. Most likely, yes. The output is definitely almost entirely going to China. So you can still export copper, but without having to turn it into a finished good. But you have to refine it in the country. um, You can't export copper ore. Any... Copper that's mined in Indonesia goes has to turn into copper cathodes, at which point they can then be exported. Okay. I, I, I mean, you know, we're sharing the jobs around. I mean, it, it, it's it doesn't harm China to own a factory in Indonesia, which provides jobs to the local economy. I mean, I I, I think these are compromises where it's all got to be weighed and balanced, you know, on a deal by deal basis. I think I think we can trade on that basis. I think the world can trade on that basis. It's just that what happens to the World Trade Organization? I've been asking that question a lot recently, and I still don't have a concrete answer other than they continue to be ignored in a large capacity because Indonesia in particular has been very forward and outwards about completely ignoring what the World Trade Organization is doing in that it's already banned nickel or output it's going to ban copper output. It's close-ish to banning the output of bauxite ore, but it hasn't quite hit the trigger on that yet because it doesn't have the refining capacity. But it feels an awful lot like, well, the idea of free trade and the idea of the lowest bidder getting that is almost entirely just made by economists. It's not realistic in the long term in that when the lowest bidder gets the manufacturing facilities and the refining facilities, because they can do it cheaper, because their labor is cheaper, that 
is supposed to be good for everybody because everybody else gets that good cheaper. But then a war happens or a pandemic and problems. Well, or, or something very, very uh, much slower happens. China started making, I don't know, TV sets 30 years ago. Suddenly, it's now making much more advanced industrial goods than, than even America. Uh, and it's it's just undermined the American economy by providing cheap labor. That cheap labor is less cheap, but I mean, it, it's it's just insidious. It just eats away at your economy. Yes, but at the same time, that can only last for so long. We've seen that happen with Europe. We saw it happen with America. We saw it particularly happen with Japan. And now you can't make anything cheaply in Japan. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and their population demographics can't support the low-cost manufacturing base that China still can because of its large population that's still largely rural. Yeah, I mean, when when Japan's uh, economic miracles were happening in the sixties, um, the, the the whole ethos was all about industrial automation, just in time processing, doing everything hyper efficiently, and now that gospel has uh, travelled throughout the world and is arriving on the shores of China. I'd say Japan are still quite good at it, yeah. they? but they're they're applying it to the high end manufacturing as opposed yeah. to, you know, like mineral processing and industrial. Like so, going back to battery manufacturing, just for a second to clarify, we expect some of the market share to shift away from China. Then, yes, exactly. The policy side of it has meant that if you want to sell to America. You cannot put your factory in China or have it owned by a Chinese factory. You can have licensing deals still, which is which are related to intellectual property. We've seen that with Ford and CATL. Where I believe Tesla is looking into it with BYD. That means that the onset of protectionist policies like the IRA, like the Critical Raw Materials Act, and the ability for member states to give subsidies some will shift. Not much. So China's currently on 77% of total battery manufacturing around the world. It'll maybe fall to slightly below 70%. It will still get a large amount of investment in battery manufacturing from the large Chinese companies, CATL, BYD. I'm assuming that that's to do also with the fact that China will also ramp up their own production. Yes, exactly. The investment in China will primarily be by Chinese companies, but the investment is as a result of there already being a nascent kind of supply chain. Hmm. It's already set up. You're just plugging a factory in and you're increasing the output slightly. It's not as complicated as saying, I want to build a factory in Michigan or Virginia, and then saying, okay, where do we get the lithium from? Where do we get the nickel? Where's the graphite? Because there's literally zero graphite anode producers outside of the outside of China. I'd hate to be in logistics these days. You know, you don't know, it would you don't know what, what the cost of getting it here is. You don't know what the cost of processing it is. You, you know that there's insufficient capacity to process it and that you're not allowed to use some places or some people. It's, and you have to prove that it's not coming from got, those places and those people. You've got to certify class. it, yeah, as well. Okay, it's going to get much more much more complicated unless um, someone, an American president, can reach out to a Chinese uh, um, leader and find some kind of compromise that uh, allows them both to prosper. I think even then, I don't think there's that much of an incentive to now, is there? No, not really. 
It's only if something really comes to a head in the raw material supply. But but really, this is about the car industry. You can't if if the car industry in America collapses, the number of jobs that disappear are huge. Um, yeah, they say the same about the oil industry. It's not not true because you could, you know, the number of solar installers is more than there were coal miners. Um, but the but for the car industry, it's been. Um, it's been supported in America financially by the government in the past. It's been supported in Europe financially in the past for Germany and France. Um, it's a it's a mainstay of um, of manufacturing countries, and if China undermines that and steals a great deal of, of if not the the uh, manufacturing, the profit from the manufacturing, it, you know, if it even ends up licensing the technology. To American companies, um, that profit is 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 uh, economy changing, and 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 that's it's finally made people wake up to the fact you can't just keep exporting your jobs to um, peasants in China and and think it's never going to come home to roost. Well, I think if there's anything to thank COVID nineteen for, that's a uh, pretty big one. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be... the realization of. Can we just export these critical minerals to the lowest bidder? Minerals industries. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and th- and now it's um, that's changing, especially with the yeah. semiconductors all being made in Taiwan, and Taiwan being uh, yeah, I mean, nobody su- suspects that really China will actually annex Taiwan, but they're, they're making it pretty difficult to uh, keep your business in Taiwan. Was there a factory announcement recently? I believe Intel is looking at um, US production. From once I was like seventeen billion or something. Yeah, Intel's always had its own foundries. Uh, it's one of the very few countries that has its own foundry, companies that has its own foundries. But it's more it's it's people like uh, Broadcom and, uh, and Qualcomm uh, that that make all their stuff in Taiwan and Apple right. for that matter. Um, hmm. Yeah, so um, in, Intel. I'm not surprised at that. It's maintained its foundry relationship for for thirty years, forty years, possibly longer. If someone wants to correct me, okay, let's let's move on because on a much lighter note, I mean that that whole article um, that goes on about um, uh, battery gigafactories. It gives a count. It gives uh, it shows you where they're manufactured, what the shift's going to be, the rate of growth in each country. It's um, it, it's worth a subscription on its own. Um, but we're going to go to something slightly more, uh, not not light, lighter, but um, uh, perhaps less um, of global concern. But solar farms in Scandinavia, Andres, what's going on? It's something that I've seen for a few months now. You see a 200 solar farm in Sweden or a 300 megawatt solar farm in Finland or a 475 megawatt in Finland or a 500 megawatt in Finland. And eventually I thought, well, I, I should check if something really dramatic and, and interesting and huge is going on there. Has the sun um, moved? <laughs> well, after thinking about it and looking at some statistics, I I gradually realized that they do in fact have sun up in Finland and Sweden, and it's not a land of perpetual gloom. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it is weak. It, it's weaker irradiance than Germany, uh, maybe 10 or 20% worse compared to northern Germany. Um, if you look at like Berlin compared to um, the Finnish southern coast. Uh, and of course, these countries, they're, they're like the rest of Europe. They, they're affected by the general energy price spike. They have a favorable um, policy situation. 
Um, maybe what's different is that in particular, Finland is a bit of an outlier for having these um, multiple large uh, solar farms. It's only a country of 5 million people. So a few, a couple of 500 megawatt solar farms is quite large for, for such a small country by, by uh, power demand. Well, yeah, um, if you're growing one gigawatt per, you know, of installs per annum at, at least, then you're, then you're, you're ahead of somewhere like the UK, aren't you? Actually, not right now. I think the UK has managed to reach one gigawatt per annum now. Even if the official results don't show that, I think there's categories for which the official UK results are like, you need to double them. Um, so, but yes, the Fingrid uh, predicts, uh, expects seven gigawatts by 2030. Uh, and maybe the new government will mess with that a bit. Uh, they did, uh, for example, they, they installed a, a new nuclear reactor recently, before the new government even. Um, so, yeah, I, I, obviously solar is not going to be a core part of the energy transition. It's going to be more about wind, and they will be one of the places with some significant nuclear. Um, same goes for Sweden if they manage to actually uh, subsidize nuclear, which they've just, um, I think this week they, they brought in laws allowing subsidy of nuclear. So, so at the end of the day, it's not really, it's not really a huge story, but I just thought it would be, I thought it was interesting uh, and worth looking at a little just to see if there's something very strange about having so solar in Scandinavia, it doesn't seem like a sensible thing. Do you know it, what happens it when it snows on the panels? Um, well, I don't think it's very good for them. <laughs> well, not only will the melt, uh, you know, seep into its seal, but um, at the same time, it's going to reduce um, the amount of the yield immediately. Uh, mm. And if it's persistent over a three or four day period, does it reduce the yield to zero or, or, or does some light still get through. Well, there's a graph in this article of um, Finnish solar capacity uh, that I found from FinGrid from June last year to June right now. Uh, and the, the total, the installed capacity goes from over 400 to 830 megawatts in that period. But you also see a graph of the actual output and it goes from 400 megawatts back in last June and up to 500 megawatts this June. But over in December and January, it drops to what looks like about ten megawatts. So it's it's. Oh. Uh, and I was I was thinking with my sort of silly stereotypical view of the country. Oh right, they're just in perpetual winter and blackness, and the sun doesn't rise in winter. But uh, snow probably does play a part uh, in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, precipitation, yeah, of, of any kind. It, yeah. it really makes you think a bit more about seasonal variation. I mean, it, it, seasonal variation just won't be relevant. But, but you're saying they um, can cost justify this, and that other countries that manage as well as them uh, on the same parallel could, could um, justify this. Well, I, it's already, I, I could have, if I felt like it, I could have expanded the article to cover what is happening in Alberta in Canada, because I think there's a similar uh, spate of utility scale solar uh, there as well, uh, starting in the same period from 2021, when you had the oil price spike, um, you know, the post pandemic shenanigans, um, and even even Siberia in, in Russia, where you know they just have sort of free fuel everywhere. Um, it's microgrids. So actually, solar in Siberia is a thing. Although I think I exaggerated when I said it was a few hundred megawatts it per year. Sounds like it's probably a hundred megawatt per year. Title of a novel: Solar in Siberia. Uh, <laughs> the, the population density in Siberia is is minuscule. Um, mile after mile of uh, you know what used to be uh, tundra 
which potentially at 28 degrees or so, which it hits in easily in the summer there now, um, this is going to be a solar uh, gold mine uh, and a, a, a probably a wheat growing gold mine. <laughs> it's uh, it's certainly um, changing the potential futures, economic future of um, Russia. All they need now is a decent leader who understands how to get on with the world. Well, too bad they set themselves back about 20 years with this uh, war. I think 20 is being generous. Sorry, people are suggesting this is going to be a 20-year war. No, he was saying set set the country back. Oh, yeah. I mean, the economy I mean, is a shock. But how are, you, I mean, how are you going to get people to live in Siberia, though? Surely you need to conquer people and force them to go there. <laughs> not, not when the temperature's gone up by about 15 degrees through global warming. I mean, you look at the change in temperature in, in Siberia, in parts of Siberia, it's, it's gone up enormously. It's it, They have nice summers. They're better than the UK. <laughs> I'm not so sure about the winters. But, uh, yeah, and it all depends. It's a vast area, so it depends precisely where. Um, but, you know, if, if this works in Scandinavia, if this will work in uh, certain parts of Russia, it just requires the political will to get on with it. Okay, moving on. Um, let's see. Our third piece today is, I think we're in fantasy land here. I think this is Peter Pan world. Bogdan's talking about a company, again, in Scandinavia, says they can make a nuclear reactor that provides energy at $20 per megawatt hour. Now, just to remind everybody, 150 is currently uh, the, the rate at which... Uh, um, nuclear is providing that. Um, SMRs are meant to bring that down to 55, whoops, 75, whoops, 100. Um, and most SMR designs that pass uh, the atomic energy tests to make sure they're safe, um, that nothing's happened below you know, the $80 mark. So uh, tell us you know, why this is going to happen, uh, Bogdan. Yeah, I mean, new scale in the States, their um, CPAs would come up to $89 per megawatt hours, and that's with subsidies from the IRA and the Department of Energy. Right. But I raised that point to um, to one of the founders of Copenhagen Atomics that I spoke with, and he said that that's a different, slightly different technology. So they use uh, thorium molten, molten salt reactors. And the thing with, with breeder reactors is there was a lot of discussion about them around the 50s and 60s but the computational parts that do actually the simulation required to, to complete such a design simply wasn't there and things have changed so due to innovation in computational power now they're able to do that and that's exactly what copenhagen, copenhagen atomics did and they are bluntly claiming 20 dollars per megawatt hour they have a so this, this all came to my attention because a few weeks ago I came across a, a, an announcement of a pink ammonia project in Indonesia, which would be um, an ammonia factory powered by uh, one of their, their, their um, SMRs. And um, they're essentially, their business case, it's a bit different because they basically, they contracted to basically provide heat. So they go through all the regula uh, regulatory processes, the permitting processes, they build a plant and they just provide heat and then they contract 
a turbine operator to actually take the heat and convert it into usable electricity. And they're doing all this with a target of $20 per megawatt hour in, in mind. So if they can't actually provide that, they haven't signed anything yet. It's, it's like I said, at the feasibility stage, feasibility study rather stage. Um, but if they won't be able to provide that, they, the whole thing will, will fall apart, I, I assume. But, but you've got to provide the, um, the transition. You've got to prove that the transition goes from one uranium to another uranium to a version of plutonium to another version of plutonium, and that eventually you can deplete these um, fuel rods and you can um, safely store them after they've been used for well, it's a liquid. It's a liquid fuel. It's oh, a liquid thorium fuel, so they don't use fuel rods. Okay, but yeah, it's the same principle. It's the same material. It's got to be uh, to be a breeder reactor. It has to change from one fissile material into another, mm. and then another, and then another. And, and they, the you can't be using half of one and half of another. You have to uh, make, make a full trend. I mean, I, I, I just how long is it going to take to prove? That process works safely. I mean, they're already in the testing stages, and they they're aiming for the first commercial reactor to come online in twenty twenty eight. Okay. Uh, so, so still a few years to go. This Indonesian project that I referenced is due to come online in twenty thirty, pending approval, obviously. Okay. So we, I mean, even if everything they say is is clear and true and testable, and we can check it, um, mm. it's it's still seven to eight years away from first implementation but then then it could roll out rapidly because they're, they're taking a gigafactory approach to it yeah i mean it's it's if it all actually goes to planning the testing phase and they they get fids and and so on and so forth and they start scaling up their target is to have a an assembly line of one reactor a day and one reactor is 42 megawatts wow so 42 times 365 that's 15 gigawatts a year from one assembly line. Yeah, but you couldn't install that much because each one is going to need its own local tests, its its own kind of proof of concept, its own, um, you, you, you know, you can't provide it next to anything sensitive. Um, so there's going to be a long period of trying to find places to put these. Um, so, so that's probably as much as this company can, will ever output. Um, yeah, I mean, it's true that I don't want to put a, a ceiling to their uh, potential, but it's true what you said, and it depends on, you know, not all the governments in the world will support nuclear, so their markets are limited. So is this going to be a new technology that's going to take the world by storm and by 2050 is going to represent half of the electricity generated? No. But if it all comes to plan, you know, expect to see more of it in in the next, you know, in 10 years' time on, or, you know, even even after that, up until 2050. I just want to throw this at you. Let's say there's 10 guys in, in this company who know how this works. They know how to model it. They know how to prove it. They know how to, to, to do a forecast on it in, in, a, in a computer. Um, those 10 guys, when, when the promise of $20 per megawatt hour is dangled in front of a few energy providers, they're all going to get job offers uh, of obscene amounts of money. And, and this will slowly mean that they'll come up with rivals who catch them up uh five six seven companies will be spawned by a company if it is this advanced but i doubt if it, i don't believe it is that advanced I, what i think is 
these are probably academics. They've probably come out of academia, and there are more people like them ready to take up the. So if this happens, it, it will it will blossom. I'm really sceptical about it getting through all the safety standards, the international safety standards. But if it happens, it will blossom and it will accelerate. Post-2030, it will accelerate quickly. Just to play devil's advocate a bit here with regards to, this, to the uh, safety standards, I think there might be a reason that they're starting it in Indonesia. <laughs> there is a, a global organisation of uh, safety around... Um, around nuclear um, there are international agreements i'm sure indonesia th- is a, is a signatory of those agreements i'm sure everybody is going to be uh, the caution came from three mile island chernobyl fukushima we all know what happened at those places and i can't see the uh, international atomic energy agency passing this one through on the nod just because it's in Indonesia. I think it still will hold sway. It will have to prove its case and it has to do it safety, safely. And I think... I was going to ask that. Yeah, essentially, I think so. I think you're right. Yeah, essentially, it's a different. It's a different fuel that's not really used at all. I don't think. Have so. you looked into the supply chain for thorium yet at all? <laughs> How it compares to uranium? It is. You make. You start with uranium. You can start with thorium as well. Yeah, you. you they, I, I think they, they do start with a thorium. So yeah. is this the base. is that this the thorium based fuel Because I've heard about thorium, thorium for a bit, more, and I thought um, I wasn't really naturally going anywhere. But now it is. If I remember correctly, so that's where the main cost advantage is I, I, supposed yeah, to come. Yeah, but I don't think the cost. So, the so that's why, of the, uh, from an inexpert point of view, such as mine, I looked at it into it's not a massive. This could be so much cheaper than other nuclear because it's different in so many different ways. You've got the fuel being different and. Anything you know, above cost that, is lower. those types uh, the of waste numbers. cost is lower. Yeah, um, the it, size is smaller. It's the continual um, inspection uh, regime and the safety, and uh, the um, switching off your plant when you fail a safety test and having to switch it. You know, go do work on it again and you know and refurbish it once every twenty years. It, it's that's the that's the real cost. So thorium comes from um, an ore called monazite which is found in India, Madagascar, and South Africa. Just Monazite is primarily a rare earth metal um, deposit. So you mine monazite for rare earth metals and you produce thorium and uranium as an unwanted byproduct. Yeah. That's why there's not much rare earth metal production in places like Europe, because it's the handling of radioactive materials or the potential for handling radioactive material, which delays permitting and increased costs by about two years mm. and 20% of the project. So I imagine China has a fair amount of it, which, considering Indonesia's and China's relationship, means it should be able to get its hands on it fairly easily. Interestingly, there, I'd have to there was a TV that. drama uh, where I don't know, one of the Scandinavian countries, I think it was Norway, 
decided they were going to switch to a thorium um, power and they were going to switch off their uh, oil fields and Europe saw that uh, the rest of the oil fields would be um, be cut off too soon for their use of petrol and they colluded with Russia to invade Norway. This is a, an entirely fictional Netflix program. Uh, well, so far, <laughs> so far fictional. <laughs> uh, I think it, kind of drama to you. Th- yeah, I think Donald <laughs> Trump would have to be elected as president of Europe for that to happen. <laughs> oh God! Yeah. The less I can remember about him, the better. <laughs> Okay, and I just remind people on this podcast who are American, um, don't vote for him again. <laughs> okay, he did more damage to the American economy than uh, than all the wars they've been in put together. Um, okay, let's just uh, move on to um, uh, a couple of the short items. Um, I'm not sure who um, wrote, I imagine this was you, Bogdan, South Korean uh, steelmaker, POSCO. I'm going to build the world's largest green hydrogen plant in Oman. Yeah, I think the the world is waking up to Oman's potential when it comes to green electricity and green energy in general. I think they are slightly ahead of Saudi Arabia when it comes well, to Well, he want, didn't he want and, to buy green oh, energy? Ahead. <laughs> All of he them did, because they actually <laughs> believe believe it. Yeah, yeah, I only said Saudi Arabia because you know they usually come up in the news with empty promises um but yeah i think that they're ahead they're more serious about it so people just um realized that and started looking into actually building uh projects there you you wouldn't mind your partners being samson engineering or ng uh from france um they 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 are all this looks quite an interesting consortium yeah plenty of experience in that project so it's european kind of energy Companies with South Korean industrials. Yeah, pretty it's, much. Uh, yeah. yeah, it could. I mean, in honor. So this might steal a march on even uh, um, you know on green steel for the car industry in the West. Hmm. Uh, well, let's we we'll have to keep your eye on that development and see if it actually happens. Um, the uh, the other short item I was interested in is Andres, you uh, the China Photovoltaic Industry Association published data um, that. Wafer production is up to 650 gigawatts um, by last year. Yeah, capacity, mm-hmm. which which you said is 97.9% of the global total. And it's and it's higher, yeah, yeah. Two point one percent of of solar capacity made outside of, uh, or wafer capacity made outside of China. Um, tell me what it's going to be in five years. production capacity on that, wasn't it? Uh, 
Yes, it's quite satisfying to see the updated 97.9% because for about two years now, I've been saying, oh, China is 97% of the global total. But that's a figure that everyone just repeats from when it came out in 2021 or something. So I was, I was quite looking forward to seeing what the new number is. So, so the rest of the world has fallen by a third. Well, it's probably going to reach 98% um, right now. It probably has. Um, and then it's going to decline, of course. Uh, you've got, because you've got India and you've got the US who are definitely going to make wafer factories. Um, you've also got a little bit out in, in Indochina. Actually, one question I have for, I think it was Connor, you were writing about battery subsidies, uh, battery manufacturing subsidies in the EU and how, you know, the EU, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I mentioned this in my EU manufacturing article and I was just very scathing about it because... You look at India, in order to build such and such number of gigawatts of fully verticalized solar manufacturing, they they release a certain amount of government funding. And you can, it's, it's like $12 billion or something. Is. So you look at the IRA. When it comes to battery factories, at least, they have tax France credits. They also have Lord, a big four factories per since unit the passing of the EU's critical uh, for every, for every item, transition framework, the, the emergency, cost of production emergency of transition the framework. There's another so word in there somewhere. There's no doubt effectively just that means India and the EU is allowing um, its member states to offer the, industrial the subsidies subsidizing for critical. Actually, the founding of the EU. Now, let me scroll up to my purely on not allowing local countries. When you try and look at the same thing in Europe, what you get is things like harmonizing so permitting processes. The fact that they've changed the rules on this is Governance credentials. What the hell is a governance Absolutely. credential? Yeah. Is that worth a million dollars to build well, a wafer factory? part of my reasoning as to so, why... So what's your opinion on the... Battery manufacturing is currently quite um, large in When the EU says we're allowing na nation states so to subsidize Poland and Hungary factories. make up a pretty significant um, portion of the battery manufacturing capacity. But going forwards... We have France, we have Germany, we have Spain, we have the larger countries with a bit more financial power throwing a few billion at projects. Part of why Norfolk has committed to its, I believe, third factory in Germany is because of the passing of this transition framework and, and subsidies from the German government. Otherwise, that would have went over, over the Atlantic and into the States. Yeah. France got the Prologium factory, partly as a result of state subsidies, and Elon Musk has been on a tour of Europe this last two weeks, just talking to heads of states. Yeah, he's, I'm assuming he's got to make a battery a load factory in Europe. He, he's got to because he's he's going to get like five or six. He's just he's just trying to get the best like deal. Yeah. He's not making a decision until he's spoken to everybody to give them the most leverage. Yeah. It makes yeah. sense. Unfortunately, um, post Brexit, the UK will be uh, not on that list, and the UK government, current government, hasn't got a vague notion of how much money uh, this would cost uh, because all their subsidies have been pathetic. Um, and um, the cost of borrowing for the UK is too high. Uh, so this, you know, bypass the UK for all of the above. Yeah, my other article on Labour's new um, energy strategy goes into that a bit. But it's also that the UK has just lost leverage now, yeah. because it can't sell into the single market evenly. And so it'll be overpaying for any factories it does get. That's why I'm hesitant to guess the size of Tata's factory that it has now committed to. 
despite knowing that we have paid 300 million in direct subsidies and 800 million in direct subsidies. This is pounds, not USD. And how far is that going to go? How how much exactly have we overpaid to bring that away from Spain and into the UK? Mm. But no. Okay. To answer your question, it is happening. I'm going to call time on it. This has been a fascinating discussion. Um, hopefully, the issue is even more fascinating because there's lots more inside it. Um, if you're not a subscriber, go to www.rethinkresearch.biz, click on energy, um, something will come up saying, I'm sorry, you can only read the first six lines and you'll, uh, you can ask for a free trial and we'll be very happy to provide that. We'll be back next week with another similar discussion. Thank you very much.